Father, I thank you that we get to sing to you. But as important as it is for us to sing to you, we need to hear from you, from your word, from your truth that is unchanging, that crosses all cultures, all lines, all barriers, that sets captives free and heals broken and hurting hearts. So we pray that today we'll hear you well in what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in uh, message number seven in the Servant King series, and the title of the message today is, What Does He Have to Do? There's an old uh, truth song that's, that was called, What Does He Have to Do? And the line in it is, Before You Will Praise Him. What does he have to give before you'll receive? When you look at the Gospel of Mark, there's, there's several things you know. One is Jesus is going somewhere, and secondly, he's doing something. And thirdly, because he's going somewhere and he's doing something, he expects a response. And you see some people responding willingly to him, and then you see other people resisting him. And now we're in, in chapter 6, and he's going back home. He's going to his hometown of Nazareth. He's made his headquarters, uh, by and large, in Capernaum, and now he's going about 25 miles southwest to Nazareth to preach and to once more be in his hometown. Now, I, I have preached in Nazareth on the site where that synagogue used to sit. It's, it's below the ground, but there is a synagogue cut out there, very small room where about 50 people can, can fit, and it's the site of that synagogue. And so when I stood there to preach, I imagined what it was like for Jesus to go home to preach to people that knew him. Nazareth was a town of about 100 people, so everybody knew everybody, which also means if you're in the South, everybody knows everybody's business, whether they're supposed to know it or not. But they missed the business that Jesus was in. His business had come to preach the gospel, to tell that he was the Messiah. Now, I know what it's like to go home and preach. Uh, I went to my home church in Mississippi uh, several times through the years, and it's now doesn't even exist. They sold to another church. And and I remember the, the fires of revival in that church. And I remember going back and preaching as hard as I knew how to preach. And people coming up to me and pinching me. Bless your little heart. We're so proud of you. We're so proud. Well, what are you going to do about the message I just preached? Nothing. We're just proud of you. We're so proud of you. We're not coming to the altar because we remember when you were in the fourth grade. I kind of think there were people doing that to Jesus. Familiarity was breeding contempt. And so the first thing I want you to see is the ridicule and rejection. And I'm going to jump through a few of these first six verses. And, and just you'll see in your notes in Luke chapter 4, a year before Jesus had been in Nazareth and he had preached and they tried to throw him off a cliff. They got so mad at him. Now he returns to give them another opportunity to respond to truth. Verse 2, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, 
where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? And then skip down. And they took offense at him. Who's this guy think he is? He's just the carpenter. He's the son of Mary. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do, notice, he could do no miracle there, not what he wanted to do, not what he could have done, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered, this unbelief caused him to wonder. He wondered at their unbelief and he was going through the villages teaching. You see, the people in Nazareth knew Jesus, but they didn't know him. They knew a lot about him. They knew a lot about his family, but they didn't know who he was what was, and what he was about. In fact, to call him the son of Mary, some people will say, well, that must be because Joseph was already dead, and he probably was. But to call him the son of Mary was against the way the cultural norms went. In other words, when you talked about somebody, you said he would, you would have said he is the son of Joseph or he is the son of David or he's the son of Michael. This was a slap in the face of Jesus that the people in the church were saying he's illegitimate. He's an illegitimate child. The ultimate slap at the virgin-born Messiah was to say that he was illegitimate, and they were offended by him. In other words, they stumbled over him. The, the English word, the Greek word translates our English word scandalon. It was a scandal. He was a scandal to them. They weren't proud of him. They were embarrassed by him. He was getting all this attention, and they just wanted to mock him, and they're offended by him. Wiest says they could not explain him so they rejected him. Isn't that what happens in our culture today? If you can't explain what Jesus is doing, the typical response is let's just reject him. Why? Because of unbelief. Because we lack faith. They were amazed. They wondered. But still, this is just a kid out of Nazareth. He's a little boy who grew up to be a preacher, and he's run off and left his family and left the family business. And they ask a series of six questions. These questions did not lead them to seek truth. These questions led them to take offense. They could not deny that he had wisdom. They could not deny that he had worked miracles. What they questioned was the source. Where is all of this coming from? And Jesus' response in verse 4 a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So what did they do? They refused him. They rejected him. They resisted him. And Jesus was limited in what he could do because of their unbelief. I wonder how many times Jesus has been limited in what he could do in my life because I just didn't believe he could do it. Oh, I believed he could do it for other people, but did I believe he could do it for me? They lacked faith, and their attitude cost them more 
than they ever realized. Now, on the heels of this rejection, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples in groups of two. And he sends them out with authority. When it says he sent them, that's the English is apostle. It means to send someone with a special commission to represent another and to accomplish his work. So Jesus gave them authority to go out in his name, and he gave them the ability to do what he told them that they needed to do. Now think about these disciples. This is right on the heels of this rejection. They have seen people follow Jesus. They've seen Jesus heal people. They've seen lives changed. They've also seen the Pharisees uh, reject him and criticize him and scorn him and plot against him. They've seen acceptance and they've seen rejection. Now Jesus says, your turn. It's your turn. I'm going to send you out in my authority. I'm going to send you out with my ability, but you also are going to be received by some and you're going to be rejected by others. Guess what? Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. When you talk about Jesus, some people receive it and some people reject it. But you have to go back here. Remember from a few sermons ago, the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soils. All the parables build off of that one, how you respond to the word. Remember in the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soils, 75% of the seed did not bear fruit. Only 25% did. We are foolish if we think that everybody is going to say, man, I need Jesus. I just need Jesus. I want Jesus. Where do I sign up? Some are going to reject. We are not responsible for their response. We are responsible to give them an opportunity to respond. That's our responsibility. All the seed doesn't produce fruit. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus had called them, remember, that they would be with him. But the call of Jesus was not just to be with him, to have, you know, this hand-selected connect group that would never stop meeting. This was to be with him because he knew that at a certain point, he was going to send them out to share what he had taught them. So this is not just a holy huddle, which a lot of churches become. This is a gathering to learn and to abide so that we bear fruit. And they're sent out on their first preaching tour. And they are sent to speak to the lost sheep of Israel. Now please note this about them. What he taught them privately must be proclaimed publicly. What Jesus teaches us is to be proclaimed. It's not just so that we get our heads filled with more information. What he teaches us, we are to proclaim. They must act in faith and not be fearful if somebody rejects their message. And notice how little he tells them to take. He doesn't say, you know, get the biggest suitcase you've got with rolling wheels. Make sure it's got good rolling wheels. Make sure it can go through TSA security and, and make sure that you've got compartments in it. Take a laundry bag for dirty clothes. Make sure you got your adapters for your phone and everything. He says, no, you just go basically with the clothes on your back. You find a place to stay and you share. And if they don't listen to you, shake the dust off your feet and keep moving. 
Why would he do that, and why is that included in Scripture? Because sometimes we think to share Jesus, we got to have a stack of theological books, and we got to have 27 podcasts, and we got to have all this stuff, and really all we're supposed to do is just take Jesus to the world. We don't have to give them all the stuff. They'll figure that out later. What they need is Jesus. They got to get to first base before they get to second and third and home. And so he sends them out with very little to weigh them down. I love this statement by George Mueller. Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Now, why is that important in this context? Because they had to lead by faith. They couldn't look over their shoulder and say, man, I'm glad Jesus is still here. I'm glad he's still with me. I, you know, I, I, I need to pick up the phone, call him, and I can't answer this question. They had to operate by faith that God had taught them, that Jesus had prepared them, and they could go out. The mission statement of Jesus at this moment is follow me, Go share about who I am, and I will make sure your message is heard. The power of the ministry came from dependence on the Holy Spirit. Let, let, let me just ask you a question. Is it easy for you to share about Jesus when you're in a hospitable crowd, but you get tight-lipped when you're in a hostile crowd? It's easy when people, hey, amen, amen. That's right. That's good. I like that. Could, could you text me that? That's a really good statement. I want to make sure I remember that. But what about when it's a hostile crowd? Can you share about Jesus? Shaking the dust off was a symbol of disassociation. God holds people responsible for how they react. Listen, when we share Jesus, we are not responsible for how people respond. We are responsible for communicating so they can respond. Secondly, there's a little brief story within a story again. Mark kind of does this, uh, remembering John the Baptist. John the Baptist was last mentioned in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, as Jesus was beginning his public ministry. Now, because of what's happening with Jesus, Herod thinks that John the Baptist has come back from the dead. We have the confession. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Herod is convinced that, that John's come back to haunt him, uh, basically. Mark takes us back to this story of John's beheading. Let, let me just give you just a, a summary here. Everything about the call of discipleship is costly. It cost John his head to speak truth to Herod. One of the problems we have today is that we have a lot of people in leadership that don't want to hear truth. They want to hear what makes them feel good. They want to hear what appeals to their five senses. They don't want to hear truth. John was a prophet. Every person needs at some point in their life when truth is being challenged to speak with a prophetic voice, even if it costs you your head. John was prophetic. You read the New Testament, there's a cost to discipleship. There was no easy road. There was a cost. 
And the disciples were called to follow. John paid the price. The disciples paid the price. You can't read the book of Acts without really realizing there's a price to following Jesus. It may not cost you your head. It may cost you friends. It may cost you people in your family. In the book of Acts, there's hostility. There's suffering. Stephen and James are martyred. Paul is persecuted. Peter is in prison. You just read it on and on and on, and you realize that John's story is in there so that Jesus can call people to a decision about himself and say, no matter what it costs you, do you believe that I'm the Son of God and are you willing to follow me? And then Mark just abruptly goes back to the disciples reporting on the mission. Now imagine that testimony service. All right, anybody got a word they want to share in all 12 sites? Let me, let me tell you about what happened when we were here. Let me tell you about this family. Let me tell you, boy, I want to tell you something. We went five houses in a row doing a door-to-door survey, and we shook the dust off our feet in all five houses. You, you can't believe. We had people slam the door. There was this 85-year-old lady slammed the door in our face. She said, get out of here. I don't want anything to do with your Jesus. And then we met this kid on the street, and he invited us into her home, and they all said that we believe that Messiah has come. You just can't believe. I mean, they are just going on and on and on about how Jesus has been magnified and and they're almost surprised that God has used them. I found myself there, surprised that God has used me. Now, this is important. The disciples didn't know everything. They didn't really know and understand about the cross and the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And here's the danger in the church. A baby Christian, we start telling them, you can't talk about Jesus until you know more. Wrong. These disciples didn't know a lot. But what they knew was that Jesus was the person they were looking for. They were, he was the one that they had hoped for. So don't put binds on people that are new believers. Listen, they'll find out they need to learn more, and then you help them learn more. But don't, oh, no, 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 you can't. Well, I'd, you know, I've been saved six months, and, and God has changed my life. I'd like to work with two old, two-year-olds. You, you can't answer all their questions. You're going to have to be more, you're going to need to get a couple of online courses in, in doctrine and theology before you can work with children. No, you don't have to know everything. You just have to believe what you know. You don't have to know everything. I don't know everything. Nobody in this room knows everything. The smartest guy on the planet doesn't know everything. I mean, if you take the smartest guy on the planet, he may know 2% of everything that can be known. You just got to go. You got to talk. You got to share about Jesus. And then, then he says, rest a while. Some of us say, man, I've been resting about as much as I want to. I, you know, I've, I've been at home. I, I'm familiar with my bed and my recliner. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. It's important that you and I pace ourselves. That we just don't go, 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 go all the time. God rested on the Sabbath. He gave us a day of rest. If you're going 90 to nothing, you will be exhausted. And when you get exhausted, you get discouraged. When you get discouraged, you lose perspective. And when you lose perspective, you get depressed and you get in trouble. 
Christian history is full of men like John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon and A.J. Gordon and A.B. Simpson who, who wrestled with despair because they were so busy in ministry. The late R.A. Torrey had two years of insomnia. Vance Havner had years of insomnia. Vance Havner said, if you're in this dungeon, you'd read a dictionary to find your way out. When you get bogged down, the Lord knows when you need rest. The Lord knows when you need rest. Can I suggest to you that whatever the reason, the cause, or the source of the virus, it has forced us to slow down and reminded us that you don't have to be doing something every minute of every day to prove how spiritual you are. It's forced us to slow down. I'll tell you, God can force you to slow down by putting you on your back. And God can force you to slow down by saying, you're going to have to shelter in place. I read an article years ago by a pastor called Rest a Wild. In fact, Vance Havner wrote a book called Rest a Wild. And he gave five points of why it's necessary to rest. Why it's necessary to rest. These are important. Number one, for restoration of the body. For restoration of the body. You need to rest so your body can be restored. Number two, to rekindle your calling. To rekindle your calling. To remind yourself what God's called you to do. Number three, to regroup our talents. You know, you may just get a little too busy and too many things and need to come back to what is it that I know God wants me to do. To regroup our talents. To reflect on who we are in Christ. It's not about who I am, it's about who he is. And to refresh our outlook. To refresh our outlook. Just some thoughts about why you need to rest. Number four, point number four is a return to ministry. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus and his disciples are crossing the Galilee about four miles across, but this crowd ran around the northern end of the Sea of Galilee about 10 miles, and they meet him on the other side. In verse 34, Jesus felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Now, here's just a side note, because we've talked about the feeding of the 5,000 at other times, but here's a side note. This could have very, very well been the last massive public gathering of Jesus speaking and inviting people to himself. In fact, Luke ties this to the Sermon on the Mount. This could be the last gathering. Opposition is growing. Jesus is becoming a polarizing figure. John the Baptist has been murdered. And so Jesus teaches them and then he feeds them. The disciples saw a problem with the crowd. Jesus saw an opportunity. How do you look at situations in life? As a problem or as an opportunity? Jesus was more than sufficient to meet the need and the disciples were more than convinced that the need could not be met. And so Jesus says, hey, let's feed them. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. 
Now think about it. These disciples have just been on their first evangelistic crusade. They have seen people respond to the gospel. They have seen demons being cast out. And not one of them, not one of them says, hmm, I guess if Jesus can deal with demons, he can feed a crowd, which would be harder to feed the crowd or to deal with demons. And not one of them ask him to help. But if you'll note John chapter 6 and verse 6, this he was saying to test them, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. They're coming off this great high, this great moment, this great testimony service, and Jesus puts them to the test. The issue usually isn't a lack of resources. It's our attitude toward the resources we have. There wasn't a lack of resources. Oh, oh, he got this kid with this one basket. He, he went through and, and, and got fish and chips, and that's, that's it. That's all we got. The issue is not the lack of resources. The issue is our attitude toward the resources. Hmm. We, we've got the Lord of heaven right here in front of us. We've got the one that created the fish and the water that they swim in. We've got the one that designed that there would be wheat and grain. Maybe he can do something. It's not the lack of resources, it's our attitude. And, and do you notice that there are 12 basketfuls left over? One for every one of the disciples that didn't think Jesus could do it. And all the way back to the boat, they're carrying that basket of leftovers going, should have kept my mouth shut or I should have said something. Should have kept my mouth shut or I should have said something. You see, impossible situations are opportunities for divine intervention. We could look around today and say that on a number of platforms that our world is in an impossible situation. But it is also in position for a divine intervention. Chuck Swindoll said about these disciples, you take care of the addition, I'll be in charge of the multiplication. God's always in charge of the multiplication. Now let's recalculate the situation. Verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida. And while he himself was sending the crowd away, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. That word for prayer there means to pray fervently, to pour your heart out. And so look at the two things. First of all, in the storm. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, Jesus. And seeing them, he's on the mountain, he's on the land, he's praying, but he could see what's going on on the sea. Seeing them, straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. Let me tell you something. Every day of your life, Jesus is walking by, and if you don't call out to him, he'll just keep going. He'll just keep going. How many times has Jesus been right there, and we've been too prideful to cry out for his help? And to call out for him. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. 
Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not, notice verse 52, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They missed the point. They had just seen a major miracle of feeding 5,000 plus women and children, and they get in the storm, and they've just missed the point. Jesus is not sufficient for me in this moment. That's what they're thinking. They're afraid. They're alone, but they're not alone. Jesus is on the hillside praying. They failed the first test because they were fearful. They failed the second test because they were astonished. After all they had seen, they were astonished, which means unbelief. They just couldn't get their hands around that Jesus was sufficient in every moment of life. John Phillips said, the disciples had become glory hardened. By the way, this could happen to any of us. The disciples had become glory hardened. They had become so used to seeing miracles that they no longer saw them. You know, we can get so used to the blessing of God that we don't see him anymore. And we start getting this attitude. Well, what's God done for me lately? Why didn't God do anything for me now? Because we get hardened to all the things that God did for us. We need to praise him in the storm. He's in the storm. They missed the point of the feeding of the 5,000. Here's the point. God will take care of you. That's the point. Now, let's recalculate the storm, but let's also recalculate the shore. They get out of the boat. When he entered the villages and the cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. On the shore, we need to remember that God loves all people who are hurting not just us when we're hurting. In your notes, you'll see a quote from Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled. It begins with this line, life is difficult. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. A few months ago, uh, I was having routine stuff done and having some blood work done, and my doctor said, uh, let's, let's do some tests here, see what's going on. And so uh, we went uh, to Knoxville, had a PET scan done, then had a little biopsy done, and uh, they discovered that I had a few spots right up in here. Uh, where lymph nodes had some cancer in them, that some things had returned from the prostate cancer. So basically, we have been sheltered in place uh, since the end of April in Knoxville, and I've had 20 treatments for those and finished those treatments on Friday. And uh, so I rang the bell again. And uh, so I'm, I'm grateful that I had a place that already knew my background that I could go that does nothing but treat in this way. That's all they do. And uh, 
It was a remarkable experience of sharing with my treatment team. It was a remarkable time for Terry and I in the mountains. I mean, we didn't... Listen, I went to Pancake Pantry once. I mean, that, that tells you how sheltered in place I was. I'm, I'm in need of a feeding of the 5,000 right now, mainly calories, but uh, we're grateful. But you know what? Everywhere I looked, people were in storms. People in this church family, people outside this church family, people in this community, people in cities across America. Everybody's been in a storm. My storm's no more important than your storm. My storm doesn't mean any more to God than your storm. We're all going through storms. Life is difficult. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. In the storm, Jesus is praying. Right? In the storm, he's praying. And on the shore, he's with us. So whether you're in the storm or on the shore, you got Jesus. And you don't need any more than Jesus. He is sufficient. Whether you're seeing a miracle or not, he is the sufficient Sovereign of God. Let's pray together. Father, there are some people in the storm today that are without you and they're terrified. I pray that today would be their day of salvation, that they would cry out to you, and that you would calm them in the midst of the storm. There are people that are on the shore. And whether we're in the storm or on the shore, I, I pray that we would know that we are inadequate for either place without you. Thank you for seeing us through multiple storms. Thank you for seeing this church through multiple storms, this community. And I pray that as we return to some kind of normal, that as we hit the shore, that we can minister to people with the touch of Jesus. For I ask it in his name. Amen.